0: Let's hear God's word. Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and let him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was a third hour and they crucified him and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Mark sixteen 32. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to this portion of your word, you would enable us to see the sad truth recorded here, the sad truth that human beings responded to the Lord Jesus with mockery, with scorn, with contemptuous rejection. Help us to see the sad truth that These are the sins that we have in our heart also. Help us to see, to understand the hard truth that in union to Christ, we too will be mocked and reviled. But Lord, along with these sad, with these hard truths, help us to see the glorious truth that Christ truly is a king a king who conquers through suffering, a king who reigns in humility, a king whose majesty is beyond all expression, but whose gentleness, whose love, whose commitment to his people leads him to embrace this depth of disgrace for their sake. And so, Lord, teach us to love him, to rejoice in him, to glory in him, whatever the reaction of unbelief might be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've previously seen the Lord Jesus betrayed, arrested, accused, tried, condemned, scourged, flogged, beaten with whips. Now we find him handed over to the soldiers for the process of crucifixion. But the soldiers have a little ceremony of their own before they get to the process of actual crucifixion, and that's something that they enact for their own benefit, so to speak. They call together the whole garrison in order to behold this, and what it is, is a ritual humiliation of Jesus. You notice how Mark describes it in verse 20. When they had mocked him, what are they doing through these verses, 16 through 19? Well, it's describing in some detail what they did in order to mock Jesus. And that idea of mockery continues When it says in verse 29 that those passing by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, what do they say? Well, they say something sarcastic. And then again in verse 31, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes have some harsh, some hurtful words about the Lord Jesus. And even the title that is put up over him, the king of the Jews, that's not meant as a compliment that also has its mocking edge. Now, there's a couple of things about the way Mark tells this story that we might be a little bit surprised about. In the portion we've read, Jesus is almost completely passive. Things are done to him. The only thing that he does in our text for this morning is not take the wine mingled with myrrh to drink. The only action he makes is a refusal of the wine and the myrrh. Everything else is done to him. He's manhandled. He's grabbed and carried from here to there. People are doing all of this to him, and he's just taking it. He's not fighting back. He's not doing anything except, like I say, refusing the wine. Now, when we read about the crucifixion when we think about the crucifixion there's a number of books articles sermons that will go into great detail about the physical reality of crucifixion there will be people who describe in immense detail how all of that would have worked more than one doctor has written a view of what does crucifixion do to the human body but you notice Mark doesn't actually focus on that in any detail. What does he say? Verse 25, "Now it was the third hour and they crucified him." That's all he describes in terms of the physical torture. Mark does not describe how blood is streaming down the face of the Lord Jesus. Mark does not describe how his back is lacerated. Mark does not describe how the posture on the cross meant that he couldn't really fill his lungs with air. But in order to straighten up, he'd have to push up with his feet, causing more damage, more pain from the nail that's holding his feet to the bottom of the cross. Mark doesn't describe any of that. Why? Why not? maybe would be the better way to phrase that. (coughs) Well, I think we can suggest a couple of reasons. One is that focus on those physical details. I'm not saying it has no place, but there is a danger to it. And the danger is of identifying with Christ, of sympathizing with Christ merely as though he were a victim. He's a character in a story. And we shrink back at the idea of this kind of torture happening to us. But by treating Christ as an object of imagination, we run the risk of appropriating Christ, clinging to Christ emotionally, sympathetically, rather than by faith. Now, this is a suggestion for you to think about. I'm not trying to be excessively dogmatic here. But is there not a danger of focusing on the details of Christ's suffering in such a way that, of course, we feel it? And, of course, we feel sorry for him. And, of course, it's moving. And we mistake that emotional sensation, that dramatization of the work of Christ. We mistake that feeling For actual faith, actual trust, actual confidence in Christ. All of the evangelists are pretty sparing in terms of details of the physical suffering. They don't give us a graphic description of the physical part of the crucifixion. That's one potential reason. But the other reason, which I can be a little bit more dogmatic about, because it's in the text, it's not just an omission, is that Mark is choosing to focus our attention on the disgrace, on the humiliation, on the shame of this. What does Mark tell us in some detail about the crucifixion? Well, leading up to the crucifixion, he tells us how the soldiers mocked Christ. In the crucifixion itself, he tells us about the mocking inscription. He tells us how Jesus was classified with transgressors. He tells us how the people who passed by made fun of Christ, and he tells us how the chief priests and the scribes made fun of Christ. So what is Mark choosing to emphasize in his narration of the crucifixion of Christ? He's choosing to emphasize the shame, the disgrace, the humiliation. Why is that? Well, because it happened, that's one reason. Because this is not an insignificant part of the suffering. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes about various persecutions, various afflictions that people have suffered, and he talks about enduring the trial of mockings. Human beings are social creatures. We live most naturally in fellowship, in community with others, and being ridiculed, being disgraced in their eyes is a hardship. It is a suffering. We care about the approval. We care about the good opinion of others. We're eager to be understood and understood sympathetically. Sometimes people will fail to be strategic. They'll confess to something that they did in order to be understood properly. They'll acknowledge one thing in order to avoid more shame and more disgrace. This mockery, this rejection of Christ with cruel humiliation was not a minor part of the suffering. It's the part that Mark emphasizes, at least up until verse 33, of his description of the crucifixion. Now, let's look at a little bit more detail at what the soldiers did. They clothed him with purple. In other words, they put on him a garment that was meant to remind people of royal clothing. Now, Matthew says that it was scarlet. Mark says that it was purple. I think the likelihood is that since purple was the color of royalty, they were dressing him and trying to give the impression that they were dressing him with royalty. But who are these soldiers? Well, they are most likely, historically speaking, auxiliary troops, not actual Romans. They're probably auxiliary troops from the broader region that are there attending on Pilate. So what color would they have had available? Well, they probably would have had their scarlet Roman cloak. So they're pretending that it's a royal robe, but it's not actually. They wouldn't have had royal robes available to them in all likelihood. So Mark des- or, excuse me, Matthew describes the actual color of the garment. Mark describes it from the point of view of what was it meant to represent. It was meant to say, here's Christ, the king in his royal robe, which is why he uses the word purple. Well, that goes, they put a crown on him. But what kind of a crown? The laurel wreath that would have been worn by the emperor? No, it's a crown of thorns. The purpose here is not just the pain of the thorns. The purpose here is the mockery, the obviously cheap substitute for the actual crown. There was a reed. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this part. Matthew tells us they put a reed in his hand. What is that? Well, that's a low rent scepter, right? It's a cheap substitute. It's a plastic quality for the sign of a king's authority. Mark tells us that they had that reed and they smacked him on the head with it. When they spat on him, that was probably a parody of the greeting. For your king, you would go and you would kiss him. Well, spitting is kind of like kissing, only it's humiliating. It's disgracing. And then they bowed their knees. They kneeled in front of him. They might even have touched their foreheads to the ground. Did they mean it? Were they recognizing the authority, the majesty of Christ? No, it was all a joke to them. Now, there's a couple of observations that arise from that. One is, this wasn't necessary. You know, in terms of getting Christ crucified, in terms of carrying out the governor's sentence, this was not necessary. This was wanton cruelty. But you often have that. Here are soldiers, they live under military discipline, so when they're given an opportunity to cut loose, they really cut loose. They enjoyed the mockery. Now, that's something where we might shrink back a little bit. We might feel like, well, I wouldn't enjoy seeing somebody humiliated and disgraced in this way. It's possible that we've become a little bit more sensitive in some ways. But there's still a lot of mocking that goes on. There's still, in our hearts, an appetite for cruelty. It's probably the case that cruelty was more open, that cruelty was more... was less socially unacceptable at this time than in our own time. I mean, you did have the gladiatorial games. You did have people killing and dying in front of huge audiences for the amusement of other people. We have our own forms of cruelty, but thankfully we've stepped back from that to some degree. We do have our rituals of humiliation, um, but a lot of it just involves saying mean things about people online, rather than going through all of this. But we're kidding ourselves if we think that this is gone from our hearts or from the hearts of the people around us. There is this cruelty. There is this desire to belittle. And there it fit in. He's been condemned to death. It's not enough to kill him. It's not enough to get rid of him. It must be shown that he is an object of scorn and contempt. That's how you avoid the brutal execution of somebody, making them into a martyr, making them into a figure that inspires people, is you make sure nobody wants to be associated with him because he's so contemptible. This is functioning along our human psychological pole of We seek out honor, and we avoid shame. We don't want to be associated with what is disgraceful. We don't want to be associated with what is disgusting. Well, there's a bitter irony here. They mock him with all this cruelty. They call him the king of the Jews, and, you know, that's probably a slam at the Jews at the same time that it's a slam at Christ. Here's your king. This is what he's like. He's this figure covered in blood and spit, and we're pretending to reverence him, but at the same time, we're whacking him on the head with a reed, which is pretty disrespectful. The contempt, the shame, is an attempt to make Christ odious so that everybody will turn up their nose. Nobody will want to participate with him. Now, the soldiers are just getting a kick out of it. I I don't know that they had analyzed it to that degree. But Mark tells us about it for a reason. These are the world's values. This is what the world thinks of God's anointed king. When they had their fun, they took that quasi-royal garment off of him. They put his own clothes back on him, and they let him out to crucify him. That's another way you can see that none of this was sincere. They pretend in order to make him feel bad about himself, in order to have a good time according to their own lights. But they're still going to follow through. They're still going to kill him. Now, as they're going to the place of crucifixion, they find a man from Libya, that's Cyrene in in the text here. So he's from North Africa. He's coming in from the field. Now, this Simon, we don't know very much about him, except that he is from Cyrenian. He is from the region we now call Libya. And we're told that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, usually that means that Alexander and Rufus would be better known than Simon. We don't know too much about them. There is a Rufus who appears in the book of Romans, and a lot of people think that Mark was sent to Rome, that he wrote it primarily for the Roman church. So it could well be that among the original readers of the Gospel of Mark, Rufus and Alexander, his brother, were well-known figures. And so Mark is letting them know, by what's familiar to them, this is who carried the cross of Christ. But why was that detail worth mentioning? It's not just like a little cameo that people get a thrill out of seeing somebody they recognize in a cameo in a movie. Well, whatever else may be true about Simon, if his children were well-known members of the church in Rome, it's perfectly possible that when he was called upon to literally carry the cross of Christ, that he became a disciple There's a contrast, in other words, between the soldiers and the people who are mocking and Simon. Now, Simon doesn't take up the cross voluntarily. They force him to carry it. But whether at that moment or later on, it's possible that Simon became a disciple. And in any case, Mark is no doubt reminding us of what we'd heard earlier in this book, in chapter 8, for instance, where those who want to be disciples of Christ must take up the cross and follow him. Mark is letting us know that can be very literal. That can be sharing Christ's experience in some of its most unpleasant and unfortunate details. But whether we have to pick up a beam of wood or not, we still have to partake with Christ in his disgrace. We must bear the reproach of Christ in order to be his disciples. What that reproach, how that reproach is expressed is going to be different based on what it is about Christ that is offensive to the society in which we live. But there is a reproach of Christ, and it's non-negotiable. You can't get away from it. Now, it's possible that Simon held one end of the beam and Christ held the other end of the beam. It's possible that they transferred the whole beam to Simon. We don't know. But they brought him to the place of execution, which was called Golgotha or the place of a skull. And from the Latin for that, we get our term Calvary. People have wondered, well, is this where Adam was buried and his skull was there? The Jewish people had a legend about that. People thought that maybe the hill was shaped like a skull or like the top of a skull. Or people have said, well, maybe this was where they typically executed people. And so that's how it got its name, place of a skull, because this is where people were killed. Some of those details are not incredibly clear. There's also a question about the wine mingled with myrrh to drink. Was this meant to be a sort of a narcotic, an anesthetic that would make things easier for Christ to endure, or if that's maybe the wrong light in which to look at it, that would enable him to survive the suffering for longer, that would make this death more slow, we're not really sure. As far as I know, nobody's done the experiment of mingling myrrh with wine and drinking it to find out what happens. There's different theories about that, but Christ did not take it whether that was meant as mockery of here's the celebratory royal beverage as we're about to put you on your throne, or whether that was meant as a minor mercy. Christ did not drink this wine, and you might remember he had told his disciples he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it new with them in the kingdom of God. And then you notice how Mark sort of skips over what you would think would be the main point and when they crucified him, they divided his garments. He, he does flat out say, verse 25, they crucified him. But in verse 24, he fast forwards through that process of crucifixion to get to the part where they divided his garments and cast lots over them. Now, we know from the other Gospels, as well as from our general biblical knowledge, that that is an allusion to Psalm 22, that it's a fulfillment of Psalm 22. But Mark doesn't highlight that. But did you notice that Mark does highlight what they did with Christ's clothes? They clothed him with purple, verse 17. Then, verse 20, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him. And now, verse 24, they divided his garments. They removed his clothes from him and distributed them among probably the four soldiers who had the task of actually getting him up onto the cross. Why that emphasis on clothing? Well, I think some of it is to emphasize the passivity of Christ. He's not even in charge of what he's wearing. And some of it is to emphasize the disgrace, the cruelty that is being shown to him. Now, Romans would typically crucify people naked. When the Jews stoned somebody, they would typically allow them a loincloth. We don't know if on this occasion the Roman soldiers accommodated Jewish sensibilities or not although I don't think there's any strong reason to believe that they did. I mean, they're not known for being accommodating. So the Lord Jesus is dressed, redressed, undressed again, and his very clothes are distributed to others by casting lots. Was there ever another person so contemptible? Was there ever somebody who must be so awful in order to be humiliated to this degree? What glory, what beauty is there that anyone should desire him? You wouldn't want to be associated with somebody like that. You wouldn't want to run the risk that the community would mock you. You wouldn't want to be involved in any way with somebody who's this pathetic, who deserves the scorn that he's received. Well, that is the challenge of the gospel. These gospels are written by people who believe in Christ. And yet Mark does not hold back on describing the humiliation of Christ. He doesn't emphasize the physical suffering. He emphasizes the social disgrace of Christ in what he chooses to tell us. And yet Mark is a believer. The Roman soldiers call Jesus the king of the Jews, and they mean it as an insult for Jesus and for the Jews. But that is a truer title than they knew. Jesus is a king, naked, on the cross, with all this disgraceful treatment. He is the glorious Lamb of God. The church and the world will never see eye to eye. We think they glory in their shame, as Paul says in Philippians. Well, they think we glory in our shame. We glory in a Savior who was humiliated, who was spat upon, who was whacked on the head with a reed. We glory in a Savior who was crucified as a condemned criminal. And when we see Christ on the cross by the eye of faith, we don't shrink back. We don't say, oh, no, we don't want any part of that, which would be the logical reaction according to the view of the world. We say, that is our Savior. That is our King. He is the one I'm proud of. He is the one I boast in. I have no glory. You remember Paul again, Galatians. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the wooden instrument. He's talking about Christ crucified in disgrace. That's where Paul was going to glory. Well, where is your glory this morning? Is it in being strong and smart? Is it in being capable and gifted? Is it in being prosperous and respected? Or is your glory in a Savior who underwent this humiliation, this contemptuous rejection in order to become king by the means God spelled out for him, in order to deliver his people from shame and disgrace? There is a reproach to being associated with Christ. But there's also an honor, isn't there? God said it in the Old Testament, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who suffer with Christ, reign with him hereafter, those who have been faithful to Christ in the disgrace of this world, sit down with him on his throne and are glorified with him. It's not a question, will you receive honor or disgrace? The question is, whose honor And disgrace counts to you. Are you willing to be disgraced by the world in order to be honored with Christ? Or are you willing to be disgraced in the eyes of Christ? Are you willing to hear those words, Depart from me, I never knew you, in order to keep the respect, the good opinion of the world? That is the choice that is set before us in principle in a sermon like this one. In practice, When we think somebody will make fun of us if we acknowledge that we belong to Jesus, if we reverently invoke the name of Christ, if we identify with him. Well, you can make that decision in principle here, and I hope you do. But then you need to follow it through when the rubber meets the road, when it is time to stand with Christ and be ridiculed or to shrink back and keep the world's good opinion, but deny your disgraced and yet your glorious Savior. Amen.